If you're looking for a happy place, you have found it. Hello, greetings. This is Live Happy Now. I'm your host, J.R. Houston. Excited that you have made us a part of your day once again as we try to help you find your true happiness through powerful positive psychology, relatable stories that you can apply to your own life, and maybe a little bit of fun mixed in there as well. We encourage you to check out our magazine from where this podcast was born. It's called Live Happy Magazine. Makes sense, right? And you can find it on newsstands everywhere, your local grocery store, in an airport, Barnes & Noble, wherever you get magazines, you can find it there. We also have a digital edition, which has all kinds of extras for you. You can find out more at our website, livehappynow.com. And while you're online, check out our partner's website. Our partner is Life reimagined their website is lifereimagined.org they've got all kinds of things that uh, can help you find your true happiness processes to go through all kinds of resources you know they say as you awaken to the power of happiness so do your dreams so what's next find out at lifereimagined.org you know one of the coolest things about this podcast is we are going to hear some very thought-provoking conversations from all kinds of different thought-provoking people and in this particular edition of live happy now we are going to hear a conversation between our editorial director, Deborah Heiss, and Dr. Jonathan Hyde. He's a social psychologist at the NYU Stern School of Business, where he's applying his research on moral psychology to business ethics. He's also an author who wrote The Happiness Hypothesis. You can find out more about that book at happinesshypothesis.com. And the New York Times bestseller, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. You're going to hear their conversation talk about the happiness hypothesis and the fundamentals of happiness and also discuss a relatable real-world issue that we've all faced as we've tried to maintain our true happiness. I recently saw you speak at the International Positive Psychology Association convention and I have to tell you it was uh, one of the most entertaining and controversial talks I've uh, seen in a long time. I really enjoyed it. Okay, well, that's a wonderful combination. I'll take those two adjectives. <laughs> yeah, it was. A, it, it, I thought it was very thought-provoking, and uh, it's one of the reasons we invited you on the show. Not necessarily to talk about that talk, but you know, just um, reawakened in it, reawakened in me a love uh, for a book that you wrote uh, quite some time ago called The Happiness Hypothesis. And it occurred to me that our uh, our listeners would love to hear more about that. So, could you tell us a little bit about that book and how you came about to write that book? Uh, sure. So. When I was uh, when I was first hired at the University of Virginia, I was assigned to teach introductory psychology, the big 300-person lecture class. And as I was teaching it, I found myself um, collecting quotations from the ancients and from Shakespeare, uh, like "There's nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so." Um, I would use quotes like that to illustrate cognitive therapy and, and psychological principles. And so um, after a couple of years, I started thinking, hey, this is actually really interesting. Like, just how much did the ancients really know about psychology? You know, because they wrote a lot about biology and chemistry, and it's all garbage. I mean, they knew nothing about biology and chemistry. But, you know, they meditated, they introspected, and they've passed down to us a lot of great insights about, about consciousness and relationships. And so I decided it'd be fun to collect all the quotations I could find about psychological claims, um, organize them into chapters, and then uh, uh, review the relevant literature and figure out which ones are true. And that's what became the happiness hypothesis. So these are ideas from ancient wisdom. And generally, there's 10 great ideas. Can you tell me a little bit about those and, and why you selected those 10? 
Mm-hmm. Sure. So I started just by reading uh, lots of ancient texts. And the, the selection rule was it had to be an idea that came up both east and west uh, in ancient times, which I took to mean, uh, say, you know, before 1700 or so, but um, um, both in older times and also it, today. And I just started writing down every claim I could find, and then I organized them into groups and clusters. Um, and originally, I had about 12 of them, and I started writing the book, and then I actually kind of ran out of time, and I was late. And so I changed the title to uh, 10 Great Truths, Insights into Mind and Heart. Um, that's a reference to an old Mel Brooks movie. Um, but the, the 10 that I ended up with were the ones that were really the best documented among the ancients. So, well, let's see. Let's turn to the table of contents. So it's things like... Um, uh, you know, the number one truth is uh, the divided self, the idea that, uh, which we get from Freud, uh, but everybody had it, that the mind is divided into parts that sometimes conflict against itself. Uh, another great idea is reciprocity. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Uh, the uses of adversity. Uh, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. So there's 10, um, ten of those, and uh, not surprisingly, the ones that make it down to us in modern times actually are all largely true, but with some interesting caveats. Our listeners are always looking for ideas on how to create lasting happiness. And I know in there's a lot of ideas in the book um, from Ancient Wisdom about how they can do that. But really, how can they apply what they're reading to their own lives today if, if they pick up your book? Um, so the book began not as a book about happiness. It began as a book about just ancient psychological ideas. And only a couple of them are directly about happiness. And originally, I thought it was going to be 10 totally separate chapters. Uh, But what happened by the end of the book, by the end of my writing, is I realized that they actually were all connected. And um, the, the, the key idea is this, that there are several different ideas about happiness out there. The shallowest one is that happiness comes from getting what we want. But that's easy to debunk. And there's a lot of research showing that um, happiness comes more from making progress towards your goals. It's the conditions of your engagement uh, with, with work, with people. Um, and uh, so the ancient idea that happiness comes from within rather than from controlling the world, um, that there's some wisdom there. But ultimately, the conclusion I came to, what you could really call the happiness hypothesis, is that happiness comes from between That is, it comes uh, from getting the right relationships between yourself and others, yourself and your work, and yourself and something larger than yourself. I think the ancients understood um, uh, the conditions under which people thrive and flourish. They had a very rich conception of happiness, not that it was feelings of joy, but it was living a life that upon reflection you would find to be one worth living. So I think the, uh, reading the ancients can really broaden our thinking about life and about um, happiness. Um, so we're not so focused on, on feeling, momentary feelings of happiness, but more on, on living a life that we're proud of and energized by. I know that when we launched Live Happy magazine, because we were featuring a lot of um, information, a lot of content, science-based content from positive psychologists, we got a lot of pushback for using the word happy because happy has that no you know that emotional people think happy is an emotion as opposed to being a, a lifelong um, happiness but I, I 
I'm wondering, did you get a little bit of pushback um, in your own mind about calling it a happiness hypothesis? Hypothesis. Oh yes, yeah. So what a lot of people don't don't realize, and I didn't know until I wrote a book, is that the author doesn't get to pick the title. That is a that's a marketing decision. So my original title, as I said, was tw- it was Twelve Great Truths, Insights into Mind and Heart from Ancient Cultures and Modern Psychology. <laughs> and then the publishers picked the title, The Happiness Hypothesis, and it sounded a little shallow to me, and I, I didn't really like it at first. Um, uh, but I couldn't really come up with a better one, and, and so I lived with it. And only gradually did I actually come to really like it and, and, and think of a way to really talk about it. But the word happy is definitely a problem for positive psychology uh, because it has all those associations of, of shallow, smiley faces. And love, lots of people love to criticize positive psychology because they think it's all about shallow, smiley faces. Um, uh, but, you know, if, uh, a, a big word in the movement is eudaimonia, the, the Greek conception, uh, a, a broader conception of well-being. The Greeks said that you couldn't know if a man was happy in that sense until the end of his life. Um, it, it wasn't about momentary feelings. Uh, we also use the term well-being, thriving. There are many other words. Happiness is a problematic word, but I hope the field, uh, I hope people understand the field isn't about how to feel super-duper happy all the time. Yeah, it's, um, I keep telling, when I get questioned by positive psychologists, my answer is, you know, live with great well-being just wasn't a very good magazine title. So <laughs> right. we went with happiness. Um, mm-hmm. You wrote another book um, in 2012, um, so six years after you published The Happiness Hypothesis, which is called The Righteous Mind. Um, this really, this book really picks up where The Happiness Hypothesis left off. What is, what, can you give us a summary of what this book is about? Mm-hmm. Um, sure. Um, I didn't realize it until well into the writing of it, um, but it's a kind of a, uh, uh, it really is a successor to the, to the happiness hypothesis. So the happiness hypothesis develops the metaphor that the mind is divided like a rider on an elephant, where the rider is our conscious reasoning, and the elephant is the other 99% of what goes on in our minds. And uh, you can't really live happily or be mature until you get harmony between them and until you understand that the elephant is really more important than the rider. Um, And I ended the book talking about the importance of balance, which is one of the greatest ancient ideas. Um, The the ancients really understood yin-yang in in China, um, uh, the the, the need for uh, balancing opposing forces. Um, and I, I concluded at the time I was still on the left politically very much, but I, I was beginning to learn about conservatism and to see that actually both sides um, have some insights that the other one just can't grasp. And so after I finished the happiness hypothesis, America got much more polarized. That's been going on since the 90s, but by 2008 and then 2012, it was just overwhelming. And so the righteous mind, uh, well, the subtitle is Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And that's a book that really applies my own research, which is on morality, not happiness. It applies my own research to helping people understand this crazy thing called moral psychology that makes us all self-righteous hypocrites, as I describe in Chapter 4 of The Happiness Hypothesis. Uh, It makes us see the world as a battle of good versus evil. It makes it very difficult for us to work and live together as a country. Uh, It makes church denominations split apart. And and the polarization is just getting worse and worse every year. So uh, um, if we think about societal well-being, one of our biggest problems is uh, hyperactive moral psychology. And the, the righteous mind is an attempt to remedy that, to address it. 
Well, uh, your talk at IPA, circling back to that, was certainly um, polarizing for exactly that reason. Um, you said some uh, things about capitalism that I don't think uh, resonated well with everyone in the room, although uh, it certainly was an interesting concept um, and certainly interesting to hear the research uh, that was based on it. Can you talk a little bit about um, capitalism in terms of how you phrased with that? Yes. So I've been, as I said, I was on the left from my teenage years through about three or four years ago. Um, I called myself a liberal. Um, I got into political psychology precisely because I wanted to help the Democrats win after they threw away their lead in 2000 and 2004. They should have won both elections. And I was so fed up with their inability to speak to American morality that I wanted to help them. And so I started really studying conservatism. Um, and in the process, because I really tried to immerse myself in conservative thought and not vilify, but really understand, as an anthropologist would, what does the world look like to them? And I started seeing that there were lots of great ideas there. there and that's the point of the happiness hypothesis. You know, there's great ideas on, on all sides, and we have, to, we have to open our minds to be able to see it. Um, well, so uh, back to capitalism, one of the big areas where left and right have disagreed for centuries is that the left generally thinks that capitalism is exploitation. Um, that's why the left favors big government or strong government, I should say, because if corporations are predators, then only a central government can stand up to them. Conversely, the right, um, not so much social conservatives here, but libertarians more, um, has long seen capitalism as liberation. Everybody was a peasant or a serf before capitalism, except for the 1%. And only once you get capitalism can individuals actually move ahead in the world and, and gain some security and some wealth by their own initiative. And so left and right have radically different views about capitalism. And this is not an issue where we can just agree to disagree. The biggest problem that almost all countries or all the Western countries and Asian countries are facing is we don't know what to do with our economies. We're facing rising inequality. We're facing stagnant growth. We've got to get capitalism right. And if you get it right, then we're all going up uh, and we can all be going up together. And if you get it wrong, then either we're all going down or we're coming further apart. So I thought it would be fun to share uh, with the, the IPA audience some of the things I've learned about capitalism and how I came to have a much more positive view of it now that I've joined a business school and actually started learning about it. I never knew anything about it before. Um, so I presented it. Uh, I presented the idea that capitalism is the single greatest uh, uh, force that has raised global happiness. Um, wealth does make people happier. It makes them more secure. It, it gives people rights, gender equality. Um, so I presented a general case for capitalism while noting its flaws. Um, and I was really pleased that the audience, even though it leans heavily left, people were very, very receptive. And it was great. I mean, it was, you know, pe people found it provocative, but nobody thought I was, you know, evil or, or something for presenting <laughs> it. So it was a great discussion. Certainly no one thought you were evil for presenting it. Um, I just found it uh, fascinating to have someone get up there and, and speak in front of a larger liberal audience on a topic that you're right. Most liberals historically would say capitalism is the root of all evil. Um, and it's not. Um, so going into this political season, as we're just really coming up on the uh, politics that are going to be in the United States for the next year, how how would you recommend people balance the powerful views that they have on politics with conversation about people who differ from them without 
um, causing this yeah. great divide. Yeah. Um, it's going to be tough. Things are getting more polarized, not just here, uh, but in the UK, where Jeremy Corbyn is a far-left candidate who's about to take over the Labour Party. I was just in Asia. Rising polarization is a feature in Japan, Korea, um, many, many countries. This is part of what happens, ironically, as countries get wealthier and more educated, people get more politicized. So it's a big problem for democracies. The, the single... Um, idea that I would urge everyone to hold in mind is this. Any good society, any good capitalist free market society has to balance the needs for dynamism and decency. Um, If you don't have dynamism, if you don't reward um, entrepreneurship, initiative, and hard work, then people don't work hard and you go down and everyone's worse off, especially the poor, if you have a declining economy. So you must have dynamism. And the right stands for dynamism. This is true in Europe and in America, uh, in Japan, and many countries. Um, the right says, well, let, let, employee, let employers fire people if they need to. Um, but the left says, no, no, that would be indecent. So in France, for example, the left says, oh, you can't just fire people. You have to have, it's very, you have, to have all kinds of protections for them. And what happens? That seems very decent, but boy, does that kill dynamism. French companies don't want to hire anyone because they're stuck with them for years. So you have to get both. The left is always standing for decency, uh, and you need that. People do get exploited. The the environment gets uh, destroyed. Uh, Animals, uh, there's cruelty to animals. So you need a force standing for decency, and you need a force standing for dynamism. And it's like yin and yang. You have to have them both. So don't see the other side as the enemy. John, this is all very fascinating to me. One of our questions that I would have uh, for our listeners in this time of polarization would be, how can we treat each other decently during uh, when when confronted with people of very different views from from us? How do we make the conversation civil and really preserve, I'm going to say, community happiness or increase community happiness? Well, I will just turn to Ancient Wisdom, Chapter 4 of the Happiness, The Faults of Others, which opens with these two quotes. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but you do not notice the log in your own? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's. Um, It's a great truth because you find the same thing all over the world. Here is Buddha. It's easy to see the faults of others, but difficult to see one's own faults. One shows the faults of others like chaff winnowed in the wind. But one conceals one's own faults as a cunning gambler conceals his dice. Now, there's a lot of research on how you make people less biased and more open uh, to new ideas. And it turns out it's very, very difficult to do that. But one of the most effective ways is to get people to reflect on their own flaws first. So if you start by asking people, well, you know, what has your side gotten wrong? Um, Where has your side made mistakes? Um, That tends to open them up more to the idea that their side doesn't know everything, Um, that democracy itself requires a constant competition um, between imperfect creatures. We are all really kind of stupid as individuals, uh, but when you put us together in the right way, uh, as um, as on a jury or or in a democracy, um, sometimes the, the uh, um, we check each other's uh, mistakes, and what comes out is better than any of us could have done alone. So, some moral humility, courtesy of the ancients, and backed up by modern uh, psychology, uh, that might just do the trick. 
Fantastic advice. Thank you so much for taking time today, John. Really appreciate it. It's been a wonderful conversation. I wish we could have more, but we're out of time. So thank you very much. Thank you, Deborah. It's been a pleasure talking with you. You know, that's some really interesting stuff that uh, you and John just got into there towards the end, because if, if our goal at Live Happy is to make a happier world, which it is, and we've got to start small with the person, and then they take it out into their community. It's it's a very difficult thing to face when you've got people who are, are constantly ready to argue about these divisive uh, topics like politics. Well, we know from um, all the positive psychology research out there that relationships, workplace relationships, family relationships, friend relationships are all core to our happiness. So being able to have a discourse or being able to be civil to each other when you disagree is a very important part of happiness. And to have happier communities, we able to be able to we need to be able to have intelligent discourse where we're not arguing, but we can actually talk about ideas where we differ. So I'm really fascinated by his work because it is about how to have a civil conversation and how to find a balance um, with people that you don't necessarily agree with. I, I think it, I agree. I think it's really fascinating. Well, it is certainly worth delving into deeper. That is for sure. Thank you very much, Deborah. And if you would like to find out more, if you would like to delve in deeper, you can uh, purchase a copy of Happiness Hypothesis and find five steps to becoming happier by visiting livehappy.com slash happiness hypothesis. And of course, we want you to join in the conversation as well. Let us know what you took away from this conversation. You can do so by finding us on Twitter at livehappy or on Facebook at facebook.com slash livehappy. You can even find us on Instagram at mylivehappy and of course uh, you can email us podcast at livehappy.com for Jonathan Height and for Deborah Heiss I'm J.R. Houston saying so long thank you and remember to always live happy